Thank you, Duke family. Would you turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1, and then all of our young people, 6th grade and down, can be dismissed out the double doors for Children's Church today in the Fellowship Hall. Looking excited to go. It's a good sign when you see them running for that. It must mean they're going to have a good time back there. That's great. It's all right, Isaiah. There you go. Don't you wish you had a pair of suspenders like Isaiah's? I saw that. That's great. And then he always wears that little newsboy hat every once in a while, too. I like seeing that. It makes me think I'm waiting for him to toss a paper at me. Um, Philippians chapter 1. Well, I'm telling you what, there are um, so many things that we could say about the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. But I trust that your desire is I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And I don't know what your perspective is, what your place in life is right now, but I'll tell you this, Jesus is the answer, no matter what it is. Uh, This morning we were getting ready, and as we were walking by the big picture window, I talk about the difference in perspectives, there was this big juicy spider who had spread her net across the window, and Judson was standing there admiring the spider, and he said, man, that's just amazing, the creative hand of God. Look at the intricacy of the web and look at that spider and look at the beauty of it and there was dew on it and some of the drops of the dew were forming like a prism look and and, uh, then Grace looked at it and she said, when I look at that spider, I think about dominion and I think about crushing that spider. (laughs) I think about dominion. Then I looked at it and I said, I think about what Solomon said in Proverbs that spiders take hold in king's houses. Okay. It's amazing the different perspectives. You know, I'm thinking about a spider taking hold in the king's house and I'm a child of the king and the Bible says that we're kings and just having a little fun with that. Judson's admiring the creative hand of God and Grace is thinking dominion. (laughs) We're going to crush that spider. So I told her, I said, if you crush that when his buddy's waiting right around the corner to come and put the web back and get the good spot. But anyway, regardless of what's your perspective, regardless of your background, regardless of where you are in life, Jesus is the answer. And I can say that without any doubt, any question in my mind. Uh, and I trust that your heart cry is, I'd rather have Jesus than anything, anything this world affords today. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach a week of revival meetings for my dad in northeast Missouri. It's the last revival that he'll host as a pastor. And as of right now, I'm going to be preaching entirely from the book of Philippians. And I have been doing a lot of thinking and praying and studying in the book of Philippians, working on seven different messages uh, that I'll be preaching there Uh, But this morning, uh, this last week, I've been reading just what we call the salutation. Dear Dustin. Okay, Just the salutation of a letter. Dear Dustin. Now, our salutations in our letters are much shorter than they were in the Bible times. And you understand that many of the books of the New Testament are what we call an epistle. That's simply a word for a letter. Okay? And the Apostle Paul, though, in those days, when they had a salutation, it was much longer than our dear Dustin or dear Doc Shoemaker, okay, or dear Gary Maldener. It was much more involved. And I want you to notice this morning that this is not just a simple, generic 
salutation. Even the salutation of the Apostle Paul's letter is jam-packed, okay? Notice it if you would. The first two verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, or Timothy, the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, or we could say the pastors and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. From those two verses, I want to preach a message on the believer's fourfold identity, the believer's fourfold identity with a particular focus that I'll mention to you in just a moment, but let's pray. Father, help us as we look into your word this morning. I pray that you'd give me liberty as the human uh, instrument, the messenger, and I pray that you'd give all of us, Lord, open and receptive hearts and liberty as listeners, that the Spirit of God as the divine teacher would be communicating and applying the truth that we're going to consider this morning to our lives. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To them, he is maybe just a historical figure, someone they've heard about, somebody may, maybe they've even gone to church and learned about, but not someone they know personally. I pray that they would understand today that you desire for them to have a personal relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for believers, those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, we do have a personal relationship with Him. We know our sins are forgiven. We know that heaven is our home. We have that assurance. I pray that we would be stirred in our hearts to a better understanding of this important truth that we're going to consider here this morning as it relates to our identity, who we are, uh, even in this life. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know that I do, as a 21st century American Christian, I often miss the dramatic change of identity that first century people would have experienced when they became a Christian. You think about people who were Old Testament Jews, and then along comes this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of them would recognize He is in fact the Messiah of the Old Testament, and that he is the fulfillment of the, the Old Testament law. His perfect life is the fulfillment for God's standard of perfection. He, his life counts for my life. And then he died in our place. And his death counted for my death. And then he raised again on the third day. His resurrection counts for my life. And it just gets better and better. But there were Old Testament Jews who recognized Christ as their Messiah and placed their trust in Him became a Christian, as the term is used three times in the Bible. I think also the dramatic change that would have come into the lives of people in that first century who would have grown up in either Greek or Roman paganism and idolatry. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians speaks to the dramatic change that that would have been the identity change for a person to either go from Old Testament Judaism or Gentile paganism to this transformation, this major change of identity to becoming a Christian. Christianity's been around for 2,000 years now. There's a, can I say this? There's a lot of precedent. By the way, there's a lot of shallow, cheap, counterfeit ideas of what Christianity is too, and that's important to understand. But I want us to get this this morning. As we think about people getting saved today, boy, if we're not careful, people becoming a Christian, even when we became a Christian, if we're not careful, we miss the dramatic change that is involved in that. 
And I want us to think about that a little bit this morning, what it means to be a Christian, and in particular, what it means to be in Christ. The Bible over a hundred times refers to the believer being in Christ. The book of Ephesians alone, even though we're not there, we'll reference it a couple of times. The book of Ephesians alone, 27 times, refers to the believer when they trust Christ as Savior being in Christ. What does that mean? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. There's much talk of identity today. And as you notice, as you look at our world, so much of people's self-identity, okay, is based on how they feel, based on fact. Instead of fact, it's based on feeling. And let me say, if we're not careful, we as Christians have our own issues of this. We'll formulate our identity, how we view ourselves based on how we're feeling instead of what the Bible says is true, okay? You don't have to raise your hand, but... Is there ever a time you don't feel saved? But aren't you glad that the security of your salvation, if you're a child of God, is not based on how you feel, but it's based on what this book says. Okay. What God said. We stake our souls on the Word of God. Okay. Not on how we feel, because there are days I don't feel saved. But I'm glad it's not based on feeling. So we have our own issues of identity, and I believe that this is crucial, this is key, that we as believers more and more be training our hearts and minds to understand just a little bit more every day of what it means to be in Christ. Okay. In these two verses alone, the Apostle Paul, and I'm just going to briefly look at these before we consider for the remainder of our time this morning what it means for a believer to be in Christ, but he speaks about four different aspects of our identity. First of all, notice he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ. I could preach a whole message on this. Obviously, we're not going to. It's unique that Paul uses this term in a salutation. Many of his epistles, he refers to his apostleship. But in this case, because of his relationship with the church at Philippi, he refers to himself as a servant. It's the word doulos, which speaks of a slave who has no will of his own. Okay? And this was a a common understanding in the first century. Do you know that 60% of the citizenship of the Roman Empire, the population of the Roman Empire, were slaves? Okay? They had a master over them. They didn't really have their own will. The master's will was supreme in their life. And so it's a big deal when Paul refers to himself as a slave. He is referring to the fact that Christ is his owner. And then the Old Testament understanding of Uh, being a servant that Paul uses here, since he was a Jew, is the idea of his being an instrument of God. Now, let me just say this. We don't like the idea of somebody else telling us what to do. Okay, We are not generally servants by nature. Actually, you are. You're born a servant to sin. I'm born a servant to sin. Praise God for the work of salvation that allows me to be set free from the bondage of sin and become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. But Christ, and by the way, when Jesus is your master, you've got the best master ever. Okay. But he identifies or speaks of his identity as a servant, and then he refers to the believers in the church at Philippi as saints, to all the saints In Christ Jesus, that's a statement we'll come back to in just a moment. To all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, speaking of their earthly location. Let me just say this. A saint is not a person that's on a statue in the Vatican in Rome. 
Just saying, okay? The Bible says that every person who's trusted Jesus Christ as Savior is a saint. And Paul addresses all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. When he uses that terminology, the idea of saint in the Bible is someone who, yes, has been saved, someone who's being sanctified, they're being changed into the image of Jesus Christ, but it's also the idea of in saving them, God has set them apart or he has devoted them for a specific purpose. Yes, for his blessings, but get this, he's also made the believer a saint. He's also set you and me apart to be a visible testimony to the world. This is what God can do to you too. Okay, and I want you to get that. You're a saint. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're not your own. One of God's purposes, one of the things for which he's devoted you is for you to be a testimony to your unbelieving family, to your unbelieving co-workers, to those that we interact with who are lost. They don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. For your life to be a testimony to them of this is what God wants to do for you too. That means we need to be demonstrating a growing and a holy life. That means we need to be demonstrating the joy of the Lord. Let me ask you, Christian, do the unchurched people around you, people who don't claim to be Christians, do they want what you have? Do they want what I have? When people see a Christian walking around looking like they're waiting on a gallbladder attack to happen, that's typically not very appealing. But then notice what else Paul does. He addresses the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi. He refers to their leadership structure within the local church. Verse number two, grace be unto you and peace from God, who? Our Father. Thirdly, another aspect of our identity, not only servants and saints, but sons. Sons, God is our Father. For those of us who've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, we're brought into the family of God. We're given grace, abundant grace, and peace. Speaking of the, the oneness, the well-being in every area of life that God gives to those who have received his grace. Grace, God's abundant provision for whatever is needed. His abundant provision his rich provision for whatever is needed. Interestingly enough, and I won't develop this, but in Paul's letters, when he lists grace and peace, he always puts grace first. Grace precedes peace. Before you can have peace, you have got to have the grace of God. Okay? You can't have peace until you have the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the identity of servants, the identity of saints, the identity of sons, we're in the family of God the moment we trust Christ as Savior. But then he mentions as well that this grace and this peace not only comes from God our Father, but from who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I believe it's six other times in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul will refer to fellow believers as brethren. And here's our identity. Can I use the alliteration of siblings? We're in a family. And by the way, Hebrews chapter number two makes it clear. Hebrews chapter number one makes it clear that the Lord Jesus Christ in the family is our big brother. But I want you to understand this. Yes, he's our brother, but he is God. 
And as you look at this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that grace and peace not only comes from God the Father, but comes from our Lord Jesus Christ too. This is a very clear statement that the Apostle Paul didn't believe that Jesus was some subform of God with God as his Father, but he believed that Jesus Christ was as much God as the Father and that grace and peace came from Jesus Christ just like they came from the Father. And that's why I can stand up here and I can say with joy and confidence, Jesus is the solution to any problem. Because he is the giver of grace and of peace too. Now, for the remainder of our time together this morning, now we can move off the front porch into the house, okay? For the focus of the remainder of our time, I want us to notice the term that Paul uses after the word saints. He addresses all the saints, notice this, in Christ Jesus. Now, I'll just tell you right up front. You can read commentators, Bible students. uh, There is still mystery to this term. It's interesting to hear guys and to read guys trying to describe what it means to be in Christ. There's a sense in which it is incomprehensible. But there's another sense in which there's enough of it that we can understand that if we'll focus on it, it will help you and encourage you what it means to be in Christ. And we'll spend a lifetime studying what it means and getting comfort and help from it. When Paul uses the term in Christ, the number of times that it's used in the New Testament, obviously when you think of that preposition in, it's communicating the idea of location or position. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. The idea of location or position. Now, In our three-dimensional world, and in our finite world, sometimes it is difficult for us to grasp an unseen dimension of being in Christ, okay? It makes it difficult, and there is a sense in which there's a lot of faith involved here, but if you can think of the illustration of mining for gems or for precious metal... If you're just expecting to look and have it easy on the surface, you're not going to get much out of it. But if you're willing, if we're willing to invest some thinking and some study and some time, there's tremendous good that can be gotten out of seeking to better understand what it means for the believer to be in Christ. If we can get even some of this truth, it'll help us. Okay? Over a hundred times in the New Testament... Our being in Christ as believers is referenced. Those of us who know Christ as Savior, 27 times in Ephesians alone. When miners were looking for gold, before they struck the main vein, they would often see some indications they were getting close. And a miner would say this. If somebody asked him, how's it going? He would say, I'm beginning to see color. What was he talking about? He was seeing some initial flakes or flecks of gold that were an indication We're getting close to the strike. So here's what I'm saying. If we can just begin to see some color this morning, when it comes to what it means for a person who's trusted Christ as Savior to be in Christ, that location, that position, it will be a help to us. And then if we can make that a major focus of meditation and focus and thinking as believers, it will continue to help us grow and encourage us. The first aspect I want us to notice about what it means to be in Christ is this. It speaks of a transformation. It speaks of a transformation. A transformation in two areas. A transformation in my kinship. Now, we're in the South, 
How many of you in the South understand the term kin? means family, doesn't it? People we're related to. So when we talk about a transformation, as it relates to what it means to be in Christ, we're talking about kinship, but we're also talking about a transformation when it comes to a kingdom. The Bible makes it clear that there are two main kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of God's dear son. And everybody is in one of the two of them. Okay. And so being in Christ begins with a transformation in my kinship. The Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse number 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a problem with my first birth, my physical birth. I'm born a sinner, separated from God. And so if I'm going to get to heaven, there has to be a second birth, the Bible speaks of. Listen, people can make fun of the term born again, but it's a Bible term and Jesus used it. It means to be born from above. It's a supernatural work that God does in a believing sinner's heart when they trust Jesus Christ as their sin-bearing substitute. He does a supernatural work. He works from above to do a supernatural work within. Can you explain all of it? No, but the Bible says it's true and I believe it, okay? All right. And I know this, that I've seen a number of people in just my ministry, when they hear the gospel, they believe what the gospel says about there being a sinner separated from God, Jesus being their sin-bearing substitute, and they believe that and they are changed. Okay. And so a transformation in kinship, God becomes my father, Jesus, my lamb and my brother. I get a new family John chapter 1 and verse number 12, but as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them gave he the authority or the power, the privilege, the right to become a child of God. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 26, we are all children of God, not because you were born the first time, but you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what gets you in the family, the family of God. I think about Ephesians chapter 1. You're in Philippians chapter 1. If you'd look back to the book just before Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Speaking of Christ and our being in him. Notice if you would, Paul says here of those who first trusted Christ. Verse number 13, Ephesians 1. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Here it is again, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, brought into the family, made a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God sealed you, you are in Christ. And so it speaks of a transformation as it relates to your kinship. It speaks of a transformation as it relates to those two kingdoms. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, the book that follows Philippians in verse number 13, that when I got saved, God, get this, delivered me from the power of darkness and he translated me into the kingdom of God's dear son. The minute you trusted Christ as Savior, if you're a believer, God took you, he delivered you out of Satan's kingdom and he put you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And your citizenship in that kingdom is forever. Okay. Your destiny is changed. John chapter 5 and verse number 24. Jesus said, He that uh, heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
It speaks of a new devotion, this transformation as it relates to the kingdom that I'm in. Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so it speaks of a new destiny. It speaks of a new devotion. It speaks of wonderful delights as well that are mine. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3, the preceding book, again, Paul said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This speaks of in this transformation to a new citizenship in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, it speaks of wonderful delights or blessings that are ours too. I got to tell you, Christian, after just that, I don't know why we would want to keep on sinning and living for ourselves. After what Jesus has done for us. And so, in Christ speaks of a transformation... We've been translated from death to life, from being a stranger to being a son of God, from being an outcast to being one of his own, from being in the poverty of our sin and spiritual death to being in the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ so that all the riches of Christ are mine through Jesus Christ, through him. And I still, I still cannot fathom this, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life until Jesus takes me home thinking about it and probably will spend quite a while in heaven thinking about it once I get there, too. But the whole aspect, the whole aspect, Jesus prayed this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that God, in bringing the believer into the family, has extended to you and to me as the Heavenly Father. He has extended to you and to me, those of us who trust Christ as Savior, He's extended to us the same love that He has for Jesus. He loves me like He loves Jesus. Can you see how if you discipline yourself, if I discipline myself to think on that frequently, it'll encourage you. And there's nothing, nothing, Paul said in Romans 8, that can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So it not only speaks of a transformation, this idea of being in Christ, but it also speaks of a status. It is my current status. I'm going to illustrate this in just a moment. But let me begin with this statement. Really, when we talk about a believer being in Christ... In our current status, we could say it this way. I want you to get this, okay? Let it soak in, all right? I got to let this soak in a lot. (laughs) Essentially, my being in Christ means this. This idea of location or position means this, that whatever is true of Christ right now is also true of me. Because of what he's accomplished, because of my faith and trust in what he has done, I'm placed supernaturally in Christ. Because of the work of redemption, get it, because he's the redeemer, and I've trusted in him, I'm in him, I'm redeemed. There is no more payment that needs to be made for my sin. Jesus made it at the cross. Okay, I'm redeemed. It's through him and in him that I'm forgiven. And you understand, child of God, you trusted Christ as Savior. There's never a time when you will be unforgiven. (laughs) I'm forgiven. And it's 
through His redemption that we have the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Again, some of the, I know this is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me too. I'm sitting here. I know I'm going to go home this afternoon and think, man, we didn't even scratch the surface. We preachers go through that, okay? We go home, we're like, I'm not sure I got it across. But I'm glad that we can get just a little bit of this and it'll help us, okay? And notice this. I'm redeemed because of Jesus being the redeemer. I'm forgiven because he's the forgiver. I'm reconciled because of what Jesus did through his body on the cross. I, who before I trusted Christ as Savior, was separated by my sin, an enemy and an alien from God, the scripture tells us, a stranger from the family of God because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago when he came and died on the cross and paid for my sin and your sin in his body and allowed his body to become the sacrifice for sin as your lamb and mine, our substitute, because of what he did, get it, The enmity against our sin has been dealt with and now I can be brought to a right relationship with God because of Jesus. Reconciled is the word. Reconciled to God. No more separated from Him. As I've already mentioned, His perfect life counts for my perfect life. You say, preacher, you're not perfect. I know. I heard a funny joke this week. Do you know why the Pope thinks he's infallible? He's never been married. Okay, and I'm not saying that in any way as a a slight on the ladies. Guys, we need good wives to remind us we're not perfect. Okay. And all you husbands better say, okay. I'm not perfect. Let me tell you something. There is no way even the most moral of people can live up to God's perfect standard. And so God in love sent his son Jesus, the only perfect man who's ever lived. And 2,000 years ago, through his life, God's requirements when it comes to living in perfect obedience to his law, through Jesus' life, my life has been satisfied in the eyes of God as being perfect too. His death counted for my death. His resurrection counts for my resurrection. There's a day coming if Jesus tarries his coming that this old body is going to die. Physically be laid in the ground, but it's not going to stay dead. And the reason I know that is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus conquered death and came alive out of the grave. And because he did, and I've trusted in him because I'm in Christ, I get to come out of the ground alive one of these days too. You say, Pastor, this is like drinking from a fire hydrant. I know, but it sure tastes good, doesn't it? His new life counts for mine. The fact that he, as the perfect son, the one in whom the father is well pleased, the fact that he is accepted means that I'm accepted. I'm graced into the family. I don't deserve, none of us deserves to be there. But because of Jesus and my being in him when I trusted in him, part of my current status is because he's accepted, I'm accepted. Because he has access, I have access. It gets so real to the Apostle Paul that in chapter number 2, he says this, that we are as good as already seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As sure as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, the Bible says that those of us who've trusted Christ as Savior are as good as already seated there too. I'm as good as in heaven. Not because of anything of me, but all because of Jesus. I'm loved like the Son is loved. 
you say, Pastor, that glass with an orange in it. <laughs> no illustration is perfect. Let me just preface by saying that. But it'll at least help us to understand a little bit. Okay, if this glass represents Christ and this orange represents you and me, the minute I trust Christ as Savior, I'm locally, positionally, supernaturally put into Christ. Now get this, and I know, some of you really analytical ones, you're thinking of breakdowns in the illustration already, okay. Jesus is not a glass, and we're not oranges. Okay, I get that. All right, but I want you to understand, let's just, let's just think this through, okay. If this glass represents Christ, and this orange represents the believer, the minute I trust Christ as Savior, I'm put... Now here's the point I want you to make, because it relates to status. In Christ, there's a sense in which we could say this... Whatever is true of Jesus right now is true of you and me. We've just looked at some of those things. Whatever is true of this glass is true of the orange that's in it. Now, they maintain their unique identity. And Paul even spoke to that. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And boy, that's another aspect we could preach a whole message on. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, but why don't you get this? If this glass is held up high in, in the glory of exaltation, then the orange is too. And get this. If the glass is down low in humble service, the orange is too. That means if Jesus would get on his knees and serve in the lowliest way, if I'm in Christ, I'll be willing to do the same thing. Amen. You with me? Okay. If this glass is in the cold of difficulty and trial, the orange is too. If it's in the warmth of joy and love, the orange is too. And, and there's a reciprocal side, a flip side to this. Man, this really encouraged. This, this is a terrible thought for, a pre, not really, it's terrible timing. For a preacher at 10 o'clock tonight at night to have a really good thought come to his mind at 10 o'clock because that means he's not going to go to sleep. But here's what happened. I've been thinking about my being in Christ and that whatever's true of him and wherever he is, I'm there too. But last night as I was going to sleep, it hit me that there's another side of that, and that is this, is that because I'm in Christ, wherever I am, he is too. That means when it gets really dark in a trial, He's there with me. Are you with me? You got it? It means when there's persecution and suffering, if I'm in him, I'm not there alone. <laughs> He's there too. Because listen, when I trusted him and his bringing me into himself and that sense of that location, the sense of that position, he has inseparably linked me to him and himself to me, and that will never change. And it all began for me, March the 29th, 1980, when as a, a young boy, I recognized I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. There's nothing I can do to my, save myself. Jesus is the only Savior. Lord, will you save me? And he said yes, and he placed me in himself. Amen. And now my status is whatever's true of him, it's true of me. And if you've trusted Christ, whatever is true of Christ is true of you. 
And wherever you are, he is too. Even how the orange is viewed by others is altered. You know, when people look at me, they need to see me through Jesus, the lens of Jesus. I got another point to preach, but I'm going to stop right there. Let me just close with this. The third aspect that I'll mention and then conclude, and that is being in Christ speaks of a transformation speaks of a current status, and it speaks of a relationship. Theologians use the term our union in Christ, and use the Bible uses illustrations of our being branches and Christ is the vine, our being the body and he is the head, our being sheep and he's the shepherd, to picture our union with Christ. The Bible also uses the term of my being the bride and he's the groom. And so a third aspect of this being in Christ is relationship. There are privileges that come to relationship because of the closeness that I have with Christ. There are privileges that come with that. But may I say this too to the believers, there are responsibilities. I believe most of our troubles, can I just say this, most of my troubles, most of our troubles as believers can be traced to the fact, okay, where there's a breakdown in our understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Okay? You can think on that. You might agree with that. You might not agree with it. But when I lose sight of my biblical identity, it's going to skewer. Remember the perspective? It's going to skewer my perspective of everything else. But when I can keep coming to the back to the fact that I'm in Christ, <laughs> He's in me, whatever's true of Him is true of me, wherever I am, He is... I'm secure in him. I've been translated, transformed. My current status is that I'm in Christ, and now I'm in this personal relationship. When you think of a relationship with another person, you think about the importance of trust, don't you? To be real. Let me just tell you, Jesus is real. He's for real. Geographical separation does not mean he is someone who was. Jesus is right now. I love what Colonel Rick Husband, the man who was the commander of the spaceship Columbia that disintegrated over Texas in February of 2003 on reentry. He was a man who knew Christ as Savior, and in his final documents that he left just in the case that something like that would happen, he left notes for his family and for loved ones, but he left a note for his pastor. I can only imagine what it was like for the pastor the day he opened a letter he never expected to open. A letter from Rick Husband, a man who had been a faithful member of his church, a faithful believer. He opened that letter, and Rick Husband, an astronaut of notoriety, his final words to his pastor was this, Pastor, keep telling them about Jesus. Jesus is real to me. Jesus is real. If you're going to have a relationship, it's got to be with somebody real. I'm glad to tell you that a relationship with Jesus Christ is not in a relationship with an imaginary friend. Okay. A relationship, if we answer the question, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Obviously, you begin it at salvation. You're placed in Christ. But as far as our 
responsibility, our involvement, it's trust in his reality. It is communication. It's talk with him. How do you do it? Through prayer, and then he talks to you through his word. I remind myself of this on a regular basis. I loved what I heard a preacher say years ago. Anytime you have an open Bible in front of you, you cannot say God is silent. By the way, if it's closed, you can't say that either. (laughs) And then he's given us this wonderful third person of the Trinity to live inside of us, the Spirit of God, who takes the truth of God's Word and communicates it to us so that we can have communication. That's relationship. It takes time. You tell me what kind of relationship Grace and I are going to have as husband and wife if we spend about two minutes a week talking to each other. Ladies, how's that going to go? Relationship takes time. It takes priority. It takes communication. It takes trust. It takes tenderness. So marriage becomes a wonderful illustration to us of this third aspect, and I'll mention this finally, we'll be closed. I know Paul said finally a couple of times in Philippians too. <laughs> Marriage is an illustration. By the way, Paul said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. That human institution of marriage is an illustration of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. twofold. A relationship is. There are wonderful privileges. Can I tell you what's wrong with the institution of marriage in a lot of society is people are wanting the privileges and the blessings without the responsibility. And so it is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Boy, we can talk about the blessings, but there's responsibility involved too. It takes time. It takes communication. It takes trust. So we have responsibilities involved as well. In order to live in the awareness of all that I have in Christ. So that I can be reminded in the good times and in the difficult times. That what's true of Jesus right now is true of me. Because that will help us. It will encourage us. It will strengthen us. It will help us when we get in difficult times. And it'll help us keep a right focus when things are going really well, materially speaking, and it's easy to get distracted. To remember, I'm in Christ, and what's true of Him is true of me. Transformation, current status, and relationship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you've worked in my heart personally, as a believer, and these thoughts over the last several weeks in particular. Lord, as we bring this service to a conclusion here in just a few moments, I pray that we would each be doing business with you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, the piano is going to be